In case you weren't with us last Sunday, the book of Daniel can be divided into two simple sections. The first six chapters are story-driven, while the last six record prophetic dreams and visions that Daniel has during his twilight years. While the prediction concerning the future is really an educated guess as to what may happen, in contrast, a prophecy is God intentionally peeling back the veil of time in order to reveal what is going to happen in human history. Because prophecy is God's way of revealing, not concealing the future, while there are mysteries unknown, the generalities of prophecy, of prophetic scripture, are knowable. In your approach to prophetic texts, it's incredibly helpful if you operate, as we are, according to a few general guidelines. First, when the passage provides the interpretation, there's no need to speculate. Secondly, when you're unsure uh, of a portion, a particular portion of prophecy, you're unsure what it means, check to see if similar images are used in the New Testament. You'll find that to be helpful. Thirdly, if the prophecy does not have a clear fulfillment in human history, in past human history, you should assume the event is still yet to come. Fourth, always remember, a church made up of Gentiles replacing the nation of Israel for a period of time was completely concealed from view the, the view of the Old Testament prophets. In Colossians, Paul actually calls this a mystery that had been hidden from ages and generations. You see, when referring to the people of God or the saints of the Most High, men like Daniel would have conceived of no other group of people than the Jews. Fifth, when you come across a detail or a description <laughs> and you have absolutely no idea what it means, I hope you know it's okay to say, I have no idea. That's okay. Prophecy is incredible. But understanding the description of a future event from the dreams and visions of a prophet is not always cut and dry. Regarding prophecy, stay humble. Don't get lost in the details and resist being overly dogmatic. Finally, and this is new, on occasion you will find that a prophecy has a dual fulfillment. As we're going to see this morning, as a prophet peers into the future. Uh, there can be times where two different but similar future events or people blur together. Some prophecies fulfilled in the past are designed to intentionally foreshadow an event or, or person still to come in the future. As we turn our attention to chapter 8, you should note that Daniel is switching back from writing in Aramaic to his native Hebrew tongue. The prophecies recorded from this point forward, though they'll deal with world affairs, they do so specific to how those affairs relate, apply, interact with Israel and the Hebrew people. Daniel chapter 8, let's dive in, verse 1. <clears throat> We're told in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time, chapter 7. I saw in the vision, and it so happened that while I was looking, I was in Shushan. 
the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. The timing for this vision, the second vision, places us specifically in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Two years after the previous vision recorded for us in Daniel 7, we looked at last week. Historically, we know Nabonidus made his son Belshazzar co-regent over Babylon in the year 553 B.C., meaning that when Daniel receives this vision, the year is 550. The empire will fall to the Medes and Persians in little more than a decade. In fact, by the year 550, Cyrus the Great has already led a successful rebellion liberating the Persians and Medes from Babylonian control. In this second vision, Daniel begins by providing not just the timing, but the location. He says that he's transported 230 miles from Babylon to the recently liberated Persian capital in Elam, a city named Shushan, or Susa. Specifically, Daniel says that he's standing by the river Uli. It's worth noting, scholars believe the river Uli was actually a massive 900-foot canal that was used to divert water to the city. If that's the case, we already know Daniel's in the future because the Uli Canal hasn't been built by the year 550. Verse 3, Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns. And the two horns were high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will <clears throat> and became great. As to the interpretation of the two verses we just read, uh, in verse 20, Daniel 8, verse 20, we're given the interpretation. We don't have to speculate. We're told there that the ram, which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media, the Medes, and Persia. For starters, we know the Medo-Persian Empire was characterized by a ram. Not only was the ram the national emblem of this combined empire, but it was stamped, the image of a ram was stamped on Persian coinage. In fact, it wasn't abnormal for the king of Persia to wear the head of a ram when going into battle. Now, what's fascinating about Daniel's vision here are the incredibly specific details. This singular empire, a ram, would be governed by two horns or powers. And, and though the Medes would come first, the Persians who came up last would ultimately prove to be the dominant force. Concerning their conquests, Daniel notes how the ram would push westward, northward, and southward. Did you notice what's, meant, what's, what's missing? Eastward. What this tells us is that this kingdom, this power would rise from the east. No reason to go eastward when you're in the east. Westward, northward, and southward. In the end, we know that the Persian Empire ruled the world and would become great. Persian kings did according to their will, and for 200 years, no animal, no other nation, could withstand the ram 
or be delivered from his hand. Verse 5, And as I was considering, Daniel's thinking this through, suddenly a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes, a unigoat. <laughs> then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing by the river, and ran at him with ferocious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him to the ground and trampled him. And there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in place of it, four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. As with the first section of this prophecy, these four verses, there's no need to speculate. We're given the interpretation, verses 21 and 22. We're told that the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. You know, if we're being fair and balanced, this first section of prophecy dealing with the rise of Persia is really not all that impressive. Let's, let's be real. Like, with all respect for Scripture and all respect for Daniel, if we're removing the supernatural, you know, it's really not outside of the realm of possibility that the prophet Daniel could have easily predicted the rise of the ram from his vantage point. Like by the third year of Belshazzar, Cyrus, the Persians, they were on the move. And Daniel also knew from other prophetic passages that God would use that man Cyrus to conquer Babylon and allow the Jews to return home. And yet, what Daniel records next concerning the rise of this male goat coming from the West presents for us one of the mo most profound sections of prophecy in the entire Bible. Not only are we told here that Persia would fall to the Greeks, but we're told this would happen in large part through the sheer strength of the first king of this emergent Grecian empire. Additionally, Daniel's vision of the future documents what would take place following that king's death. We're told the large horn would be replaced by four notable ones, but they wouldn't have the same power. As you consider <clears throat> the historical fulfillment of this prophecy, you got to remember, Daniel is writing this in the year 550 B.C. Yeah, even though the Persians are on the rise, Babylon is still the predominant world power. Like at this point in history, Greece was simply a geographic area comprised of a collection of small, independent city-states like Athens and Sparta. You see, in the year 550, Greece had zero national identity and wasn't on the world stage in any way. 
like for context, when Daniel receives this vision, we're 70 years from the famous Battle of Thermopylae between King Leonidas of Sparta and Xerxes of Persia, the movie 300. We're 120 years from the Peloponnesian Wars. And we're some 194 years from the birth of Alexander the Great. As Daniel's standing there, considering the ram, he recounts how suddenly he sees this male goat coming from the west, across the surface of the earth, without touching the ground. The goat had this notable horn between its eyes and became very strong. Specifically, Daniel observes how this goat confronts the ram, rages against him, attacks, and conquers him. The ram had no power. In the year 359 B.C., a Macedonian king named Philip II became intoxicated with a vision of Grecian military and cultural world dominance. Through various military conquests, and some savvy political maneuvering, Philip was ultimately successful in unifying the various city-states of Greece into a singular federation known as the League of Corinth. His plan was to use this new unified Grecian army to take on the mighty Persians. However, in a twist of fate, in 336 B.C., Philip was assassinated by his bodyguard leaving the throne to his 20-year-old son, Alexander. Educated by Aristotle and driven by the desire to fulfill his father's legacy, Alexander, he killed the conspirators and consolidated all of this power to himself. With a highly trained but nimble fighting force, a military mind rivaled by no one in his day, and with a, a, almost a singular maddening focus, it would only take Alexander 10 years to conquer Persia through three notable battles, but to conquer the rest of the known world one decade. Indeed, just as Daniel observed, Alexander moved quickly across the surface of the whole earth as if he wasn't even touching the ground. Known in his days, Alexander the Great, this man proved to be fierce and brilliant. He was undefeated in battle, and his empire would stretch from North Africa all the way to India. Historically, Alexander is widely considered to be history's most successful military commander, rightfully so. One of the important differences of Grecian dominance as opposed to the Persians and Babylonians before them, was their desire to impose Hellenistic culture, their culture, upon the world. You see, the people that they conquered, they forced to live a more refined existence defined by the Greeks. During the years of Grecian control, the world changed dramatically, and some can even argue for the better. The Greeks codified mythology, introduced philosophy, education was prioritized, reading, writing, uh, reading and writing arithmetic, dress, architecture was transformed. 
as one primary example of the spread of Hellenistic culture, how it really rooted itself in the world, even when their power was supplanted by the Romans, the language of the day didn't switch to Latin, no. The language remained what was known as Koine Greek, or Common Greek. By the time of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, the church, the entire known world was linked together for maybe the first time in history, or at least since Babel, by one common universal language. Ironically, the only people who received an exemption of sorts from Alexander concerning this cultural revolution was the Hebrews. And the story for how that happened is really astounding. According to first century historian Flavius Josephus, as Alexander the Great approached Jerusalem following his siege of Tyre, he was met outside the city by Jadus, the high priest, who was fully adorned in his priestly attire. Knowing that the Greeks had plans to overthrow the city, God had instructed Jadus by a dream not to resist Alexander, but to go out and meet him. Overwhelmed by the sight, Josephus tells us that Alexander, he dismounts from his horse and he approaches this man alone to the chagrin of his bodyguards. And then the great conqueror bows his knees before the high priest. Perplexed by what was happening, Alexander the Great then explains that since his youth, he had had a reoccurring dream of a man coming to meet him dressed in purple, a man he now identifies as the high priest of Israel. Not only does Alexander go and make an offering at the temple to God, but the high priest, according to Josephus, proceeds to open the scrolls to Daniel 8 to read for him this very section of Scripture prophesying his rise to power and conquests over the Persians some 200 years earlier. In turn, Alexander spares Jerusalem and then he proceeds to extend to the Jewish people the same protections that had been granted to them by the Persians. Hebrew culture would remain intact, and most importantly, they would be free to worship God as they desired. In addition to predicting Alexander's rapid rise to power, Daniel's prophecy is also important because it describes his swift fall as well. In verse 8, we read that the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken. Tragically, at the age of 32, after conquering the world, Alexander the Great unexpectedly grew sick and died roughly 14 days later. Like, to this day, historians are, are really divided as to the cause of Alexander's death. Speculations range from acute pancreatitis from years of heavy drinking, to typhoid fever complicated by maybe even a perforated bowel. Some believe foul play may have been involved and that Alexander had been poisoned by friends. Either way, what's interesting is where Alexander the Great dies. On June 10th, maybe 11th, 323 B.C., Alexander the Great died in the city of Babylon 
and the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, following his ultimate death, Daniel then witnesses four lesser kingdoms arise out of that nation. Because Alexander possessed no living heir or will dictating succession, when asked who was to take his place, his only instruction was to give it to the strong. And the chaos that resulted. Four of Alexander's generals eventually divide up the empire. Cassander ruled over Greece. Lysimachus governed an area known as Asia Minor, which included Macedonia. Seleucus assumed control over Babylon, Persia, and Syria, which included Israel. And Ptolemy ruled over Egypt and North Africa. Let's continue to see what, what happens next. Verse 9. And out of one of them, these, these four kingdoms, came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, towards the glorious land. Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Uh, this reference of the host of heaven, the stars, it's a reference hearkening back to Genesis 12 of the descendants of Abraham, that they'd be as the stars of the sky. These are the Hebrew people. This man even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, this being Jesus. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Of the four kingdoms of Alexander's Grecian Empire, the Seleucid dynasty would largely govern Judea and Jerusalem, until their ultimate fall to the Romans. To make a long, kind of complicated story very brief, in 175 BC, a man by the name of Antiochus IV took power over the Seleucid Empire by brutally killing several of the more legitimate heirs positioned in front of him. History records that Antiochus IV not only had a lofty view of himself, but he proved to be an atrocious, vile human being. As just one example, after taking the throne, he changes his name to Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest or the illustrious one. <laughs> High opinion of self, no doubt. While the Greek rulers who had come before had honored Alexander's wishes, that the Jewish people be allowed to maintain their own unique religious and cultural heritage. Antiochus Epiphanes drastically reversed these policies by mandating that the Jewish people had to adopt Hellenistic culture. Some of the Jews were willing to capitulate. A great many rebelled. To aid in this process, Antiochus had the rightful high priest, Onias III, removed. And he replaced him with his brother, Jason, who had paid handsomely for the position. That said, that arrangement proved to be short-lived when in 172 B.C. another brother uh, named uh, Milanus gave Antiochus an even greater bribe to replace Jason. 
to pay for his treachery, Milanus, he sold off the temple utensils. His brother Onias, the legitimate high priest, rebuked him. He was then murdered. It was a mess. The plot then thickens. When in 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes launches what would be an unsuccessful attack on Alexandria and Egypt. Rome, who was a rising power at the time, intervened. And Antiochus was embarrassed, humiliated. Sadly, though, word had spread in Judea that he had died in battle. So emboldened by the news, Jason gathers an army, fights against his brother to regain the office of high priest. Enraged by his embarrassing defeat, hearing what had happened in Judea, upon his return, Antiochus Epiphanes comes to Jerusalem and he puts down this rebellion. According to 2 Maccabees 5, we're told, quote, he ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom they met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children, a slaughter of virgins and infants. In the space of three days, again, this is ancient warfare, 80,000 Jews lost their lives. 40,000, meaning a violent death, and the same number were sold into slavery. To compound the carnage, Antiochus, he does something else. He, he enters the temple on the Sabbath. And in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, he has erected a statue of Zeus. Antiochus Epiphanes then slaughters a pig in desecration in the temple and sprinkles blood all over the holy artifacts. From that point forward, Antiochus put an end to the daily sacrifices. <laughs> Imagine your Daniel looking into the future to see such an event take place. Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and this is likely an angelic being, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices? and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, so they notice he's, over, you know, he's listening to the conversation, he says to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. As the vision unfolds, Daniel, he eavesdrops on a conversation happening between two angels standing by. The question of concern was how long was God going to allow the temple, the sanctuary, to be trampled underfoot, the daily sacrifices stopped, the temple left in, in desolation. One angel remarks that after the transgression of desolation, until the sanctuary would be cleansed, would be 2,300 days. Now, Scholars are kind of divided on what this means. Some think it's a literal 2,300 days. Others believe that this is actually a reference to 2,300 of the daily sacrifices. And since there are two sacrifices that happen each day, what's in reference is actually 1,150 days, half of that. We have no idea. Like The only thing that we can say for sure is that 2,300 days or 1,150 days 
has to still be future, the fulfillment, because there's no clear historical correlation. In response to the actions of Antiochus in 168 B.C., the Maccabean Revolt, the revolution, occurred. It took three years, but in 165, the Jews were successful in freeing themselves from Seleucid control. They reinstituted the sacrifices, rededicated the temple. The event, this event, is commemorated by the Hebrews in what is known as the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah. History is a little murky at what transpires after this. But there does seem to be a consensus that when Antiochus Epiphanes, who at the time was in the east, heard the news of the Maccabean successful revolt, He's so maddened that he devised plans to return to Judea, destroy Jerusalem in the temple, and exterminate every Jewish living person. Now, whether or not there was divine intervention, Antiochus Epiphanes would never see his dream fulfilled, for he would soon die a horrific death, being eaten from the inside out by worms. Verse 15, Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning. So Daniel's trying to wrap his brain around what he saw. That suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So God sends to Daniel the angel Gabriel. This is the first mention of this angel. He plays a big role in the Gospels. Gabriel said to explain the vision to Daniel. So Gabriel came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. So Daniel passes out cold, but he touched me, and he stood me upright. <laughs> kind of weird for just a vision. Gabriel said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. Verse 20, the ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes, the first king. As for the broken horn, the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. We've read that. Continuing, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told, is true. Therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Well, we know that this vision undoubtedly referred to many days in the future, especially from Daniel's vantage point receiving it in 550 B.C., Within these final verses, we find three statements made by Gabriel that admittedly complicate 
our understanding of what should be a very straightforward passage. While the vision of the ram and goat being Persia and Greece, within the notable mentions of Alexander, the division of his kingdom into four separate parts, the later actions of Antiochus Epiphanes being rather straightforward in light of history. The complication arises in the way that Gabriel sets up his explanation. Look again, he says, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of indignation. Then he says, at the appointed time, the end shall be. Before describing this future king by saying, in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. Now, (laughs) there are a few ways that you can read this. One, everything in the chapter has already been fulfilled in history. Meaning, in these final few verses, Gabriel is just giving us a more detailed description of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's one. The other way you can read it, two, is the vision, the whole vision, is of the end times. Meaning, Persia and Greece play a more active role than maybe we believe, and the description is of the Antichrist and not Antiochus. So one, everything's already been fulfilled. Two, everything will be fulfilled. Or the third way of reading it, yes. (laughs) I mean that seriously. Like, there's no question, a huge portion of this vision has been fulfilled in history. I mean, the details are so specific, it's hard to conclude otherwise. And yet, on the flip side of this, Gabriel is crystal clear to Daniel that the vision has undeniable, in times, ramifications. Again, this means that a huge portion of the second part of Daniel 8 is prophecy yet to be fulfilled. Look, it would seem the entire purpose of the vision was to reveal to Daniel something important about the end time scenario, specifically concerning the Antichrist. And yet, to accomplish that, Daniel needed to first see Antiochus Epiphanes. That said, to get to Antiochus, You had to get through Persia's rise and then fall to Greece and then Alexander's kingdom splintering into four so that Antiochus could ascend to power over the land of Israel. You follow? Like at this point, what Daniel witnesses of Antiochus Epiphanes while happening in his future or past has a dual fulfillment foreshadowing the still yet future Antichrist. Again, Daniel's looking into the future to see the Antichrist, but between the two, there's Antiochus Epiphanes. So he's seeing both of them, and they overlap. Antiochus gives insight into the Antichrist. It's interesting, he's mentioned as the little horn, connecting the dots. So, what do we learn about the Antichrist through the lens of Antiochus Epiphanes. We'll do this quickly. First, 
We know he will rise, quote, when the transgressors have reached their fullness. People are, when's, when's the Antichrist going to appear? Well, we're told when. This word transgressors, it means rebellion or the breaking away or the apostasy. And then the Hebrew word translated, have reached their fullness, gives the impression that the rebellion, the breaking away, the apostasy has reached a point of no return. Like the idea articulated is that the moral climate of the world, when the Antichrist ultimately rises to global power, it'll be completely godless, beyond the pale, beyond redemption. In fact, it would be similar to the atmosphere we find that precipitated Noah's flood. In Genesis 6, verse 5, we're told that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Secondly, like Antiochus Epiphanes, we can assume the Antichrist will be more than just a military leader, but also a cultural revolutionary. Not only are we told that he will cast truth to the ground, but like the Greeks, he will impose onto the world the cultural norms of his new godless kingdom. And this new morality, what is right will be wrong. What is wrong will be right. Accepted truth will be substituted for the lie. Don't we see this happening right now in our own culture? Thirdly, his power shall be mighty. And yet we're told, not by his own power. You know, aside from the fact that Satan will give the Antichrist supernatural power and influence, we're told an army will be given over to him as well. You see, the Antichrist will have the authority as well as the means to crush any and all who might oppose him. At this point, Gabriel says this future leader shall destroy fearfully or literally extraordinarily. Fourth, while we're told through his incredible cunning or literally his prudent policies and the fierceness of his character, the Antichrist will destroy many in their prosperity. The King James Version translates this line, as by peace he shall destroy many. Interesting. This man will justify his brutality under the guise of this is what's necessary to bring about global peace and unity. And yet, in spite of his sad savagery and sinister scheming, in his campaign, the Antichrist, he himself will prosper and he will thrive. Fifth, in the same way Antiochus Epiphanes Epiphanes waged war against the nation of Israel. The Antichrist will also seek to destroy the mighty, holy people of God, casting down some of the hosts and stars to the ground to trample them. In the end, the Antichrist will desecrate a future temple, just like Antiochus Epiphanes. He will bring an end to the daily sacrifices. He will rise against the prince of princes. He will exalt himself as high as Jesus. Understand the Antichrist will view himself as a replacement savior for a fallen world. He will exalt himself 
to the position of God-man and demand worship. Finally, Gabriel tells us, like Antiochus Epiphanes, this Antichrist will not prevail in the end. We're told that he will be broken without human means. While there is no power on earth that will be able to stand against the Antichrist, the book of Revelation Revelation is clear that Jesus, well, while there not be, might not be a power on earth, Jesus will come from heaven and utterly destroy this man, putting an end to his reign of terror, casting him into the lake of fire forever. In light of all of these things concerning the future, the chapter closes, verse 27. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision. But no one understood it. For a man who had been taken from Jerusalem, forced into exile, seeing these things in the future, I mean, Daniel can't stomach what he saw. The future of the Jews. We're told that he fainted and was sick for days on account of this revelation. Ill, physically ill. You know, I believe that what disturbed Daniel most about this view of the future centers on the explanation as to why God allowed such terrible things to happen. Not only during the time of, of Antiochus, but in the end days concerning the Antichrist. Uh, look back at verse 12. We read that an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices and cast down truth. Why? Because of transgression. You know, the question begs, whose transgression? Remember, the prophet Daniel is in Babylon because of the judgment of God on account of the Hebrew people's idolatry and wickedness. Daniel, he longs for the restoration of his people, to see the Jews return to their covenantal relationship with God. How it must have broke his heart to see that, yeah, the Jews would return to the land. Yes, the Jews would return to the temple. Yes, the priesthood would be established. Yes, sacrifices would commence. But how it must have broken him to see that these liberated Jews would repeat the mistakes of their past. That's what he sees. Not only would they repeat these mistakes once, but twice in history as God would have to use these two evil men, Antiochus Epiphanes and then later the Antichrist, to judge the Jews accordingly. It's amazing about this prophecy, aside from its accuracy and the attention to detail, is that in spite of all of these things, <laughs> think about it, God would use both Antiochus Epiphanes and He would also use the Antichrist to set the stage for the first and then second comings of Jesus Christ. God is in control. And how often it is that following judgment and exile that we come to discover God's amazing grace. In closing, and in way of pulling some application from the passage, I want to point out that Daniel receives this amazing revelation. It's God's Word. 
Like Daniel knows that what he's seeing is important, vitally so. Which explains why in verse 15, we're told that he was seeking the meaning of the vision. Like Daniel was actively seeking to know what he didn't. When suddenly, God sends to him a guide in the form of Gabriel to help him understand. Do you ever feel as though understanding Scripture is difficult? Do you ever open your Bible and you read and you're lost? You know, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus gives his followers a firm promise. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. While God's Word can be complex and complicated, by intention, God's Word is designed to be knowable. It's how you get to know Jesus. You know, friend, God's Word, it's fundamentally supernatural. In that it possesses the ability to do what no other book can do. And that is speak beyond the human mind into the spirit of man. It's what transforms us. As such, count it great joy knowing that you've been given more than an angel. If the Word of God is designed to hit me in my spirit, you've been given the Holy Spirit to help you understand, to help make sense, for God's Word to come alive and do its work. In John chapter 14, verse 26, Jesus said, He said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Daniel 8. What an amazing passage of Scripture. So, Father, as we've come to the written Word, we want to learn more of the living Word.